0: On Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars working in the field. Uh, Joining us today, once again, is Wendy Perlman, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University, uh, and making her third appearance on the podcast. Welcome back, Wendy. Thank you. So, so Wendy is the author of a a new book called We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled Voices from Syria, an oral history of of the uprising, war, and the aftermath uh, in Syria. And uh, this is a a bit of a departure uh, from some of the more traditional uh, political science work that you've done in the past. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book, what made you choose this kind of format, and what the format is. Just tell us about the book.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, So yeah, well, the the most clear departure is that it's a popular book. It's published by a trade press aimed for general audiences. So my day job is to be a political scientist, to be very self-conscious about methodology, theory, to try to make a contribution to scholarly literatures. This was aimed for more mass appeal. The real objective was to think about a general Western American English-speaking audience and try to think, what could I present to them that would help people, normal readers, understand the Syrian conflict, but also try to understand it as Syrians themselves have lived it, to get a real sense of the human stake, the human story behind the conflict. So I began interviewing displaced Syrians in 2012. And over the next four years, from 2012 to 2016, interviewed about 300 Syrian refugees in Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon. And then as the refugee crisis moved to Europe, I moved on and also interviewed people in Sweden, Denmark, and Germany. Then I did a few interviews in the United States as well. So when I began this project, it was with a more scholarly aim. I was interested in protest dynamics and really the question of how people come to participate in high-risk dissent. So for my first wave of interviewees made interviewing trips, I really was interested in asking people if they'd participated in demonstrations, because it was still fresh at that point. Um, But then I found as I started to collect stories that there was so much more to the Syrian story than, than just protest. As important was understanding the context from which protest emerged, people's experiences living under authoritarian regime, and as the conflict went forward and my project went forward, uh, there came to be much more to the story after protest, as protests spawned an armed rebellion that spawned this brutal, multi-dimensional war and ultimately forced migration of over half of the population. Um, so I captured a book that tried to uh, to capture, I wrote a book that tried to capture all of those stories. So my interviews were extremely open-ended really ultimately I was asking people, tell me about your story. And the people I interviewed told me anything they wanted to tell me. Some of the interviews were as short as maybe a 20-30 minute brief conversation. Some were group group conversations with many Syrians talking amongst themselves. Some were these really in-depth life stories where I would sit with someone for hours and hours, sometimes with days, as they walked me through the events of their life. So I collected hundreds of thousands of words of testimonials and transcripts. I worked with bilingual assistants to slowly transcribe all of the interviews that were typically uh, audio in Arabic to written in English and I pored over these transcripts and testimonials and looked for the issues and the events and the developments and the themes that really rose across across transcripts, across interviews, and that I thought together kind of coalesced into a joint, shared narrative. So what I put together tries to express that narrative. So the introduction to the book is in my words. It offers some brief historical context um, on all of the events discussed in the book, and as well as a real, real brief discussion about how I came to do the project. And then it's divided into eight parts. And in each of those eight parts, the content of the book is, is exclusively excerpts from the testimonials themselves. It literally goes name, story, name, story, name, story. Some are extremely brief, as brief as a sentence or two, almost a kind of poetic reflection. Some are extended anecdotes in which someone talks about some sort of event in his or her life over a couple of pages. And my job was to um, create each excerpt, cutting and culling the transcript into a kind of small, digestible part, and then the most difficult part for me, but also the most fun from a sort of craft point of view, was to put them all together in a sequence, so that the sequence told the story of Syria. The book is organized chronologically. It begins with stories about life under the regime of Hafez al-Assad, then how life changed under Bashar al-Assad, then how the uprising began in 2011, how it's spread, how it escalated, the regime's response to peaceful protests, how the rebellion became armed, civilians' experiences living war, and ultimately how people fled as refugees and their new lives as refugees. So the testimonials follow this chronological arc from historical background to the present, but the content of the book, how the reader moves each step of the way of the journey, is really exclusively through the words of Syrians themselves.
0: No, it's fantastic. It's a and it's a it's a very gripping read. Uh, when we had our uh, our last podcast conversation yeah. about a year ago mm-hmm. uh, or so, um, we talked a lot about the process of interviewing refugees and mm-hmm. kind of what it meant as a as a political science researcher with an agenda. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, going and, and talking to these traumatized, displaced people, and in, in some ways, I feel like this book is going in the op- in, in the opposite direction. In other hmm. words, trying to put their experience front and center while removing the the you, the researcher, <laughs> the yeah. political scientist. Yeah. Uh, was that was that a conscious methodological choice, or how did you go from the natural political scientist? you know, kind of imperative to interpret (laughs) and analyze and code into what you've produced here.
1: It was a really interesting process of a lot of um, trial and error. So I didn't necessarily have this vision of of a format when I began, but through many rounds of experimentation, this is what I wound up with, and I feel like it's worked best to showcase best the material I collected. So you're right, I think the political scientist's natural imperative is to present an argument, to present an interpretation, to bring in interviews as data to defend, support, demonstrate one's point, but the... The takeaway is your point, and the other stuff is brought in only as data. I have to confess, that was my first draft of this <laughs> book. <laughs> it was me as a sort of the, you know, omniscient narrator, um, and bringing in blocks of text. So I wrote something like, you know, in March, two th- March 2011, protests began, and da-da. And then here is a big chunk of a testimony of somebody describing that. And then I would say, meanwhile in homes and then there would be a big chunk. And I wrote... Uh, probably three-fourths of the book that way. And uh, when I was working with a literary agent sent around to publishers, publishers said to me, several publishers said, we love the idea of Syrian voices. We hate these sample chapters. (laughs) (laughs) They said, it does not work. Your voice back and forth with with the refugees' voices, which was interesting from an academic point of view. That's a pretty standard format. From publishers who were thinking about sort of a mass readership, they thought it's just too jarring why don't you let the voices speak more for themselves? And that's when it clicked. Yeah, that was the better thing to do. So maybe that's what liberated me from sort of the academic kind of uh, imperative or apparatus of thinking, I had to interpret the voices for the reader. No, the voices really could speak for themselves. So I then became the backstory. Clearly, I'm an important part of the story because I took transcripts that could be twenty thousand words and sometimes whittled them down to an excerpt of two hundred and fifty words. Um, so the the culling and the and the choosing mm-hmm. small excerpts was was a lot of a lot of work from the point of view of the yeah. author, and then putting them in the in the in the in the order that I thought worked um, was also, you know, work on my on my end. And in putting together that sequence, I thought what what does a reader need to know to understand Syria? What are the kinds of questions that occur to most readers about what is this regime all about? What's the role of sect? What's the role of economics? What about rural people and urban people? All the kinds of things that I thought readers might want to know, and the kinds of things from mm-hmm. you know our shared political science background, we know are important parts of the story. So I thought about those types of things, which is informed by theory and background knowledge and that sort of thing. But I also found that the testimonies could say them on their own. They didn't need me to say, and here is an interview about the meaning of sect. People said it for themselves. I just had to put it in a place that could walk the readers through the story. So in that sense arranging the sequence was about thinking how each excerpt could connect to what went before it and also bridge to what came after it in a way that the reader wouldn't get lost Mm -hmm. and would leave feeling like they understood Syria better, but all of it through Syrians' words, and all of it intensely, profoundly human. Not at theoretical abstractions, but but individuals saying how all of this mattered for their lives as real people.
0: But of course, you can take yourself out of the book, (laughs) and you can take the political science out of the book, but you, the political scientists, are still there. Yes. You're making choices, and and, and you're crafting this narrative in ways that, as you said, are informed by your theoretical priors and where you want to go. And that raises a whole bunch of questions Mm -hmm. about because it appears as a natural, like this Mm -hmm. is an authentic, pure expression of Syrian voices. Uh But like you said, you've selected 50,000 words out of 100,000 pages of of, of transcript notes. Mm -hmm. And so some of the methodological questions Mm -hmm. that might come out is, You know, on the, so the first one is this, the the sampling. Mm-hmm. and 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 you and you're very explicit about this you don't yeah. it's it's actually very admirable about mm-hmm. what how clearly you you talk mm-hmm. about what you're doing mm-hmm. but in a sense the 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 sampling not just right. of your, the 300 but then of the ones you choose to quote right in what sense how would you convince the skeptical reader that right. this is uh, an authentic representation of Syrians in general as opposed mm-hmm. to the people you've chosen to highlight and to feature
1: mhm it's, I mean, in some ways, I feel like the, sort of the proof is in the, in the pudding, and I've been extremely gratified at this point that many Syrians have read the book. And across the board, at least especially those sort of identifying as regime opponents and mm-hmm. supporting and, and, and participating in the uprising to some degree, um, you know, we currently come back and say, yeah, that's our story that's my story. And even people say things like, that's my story, but I began to forget my own story. I forgot we used to do that. The, my memory's slipping away. It's all there. I mean, I just had a, a book talk two days ago here in Washington, D.C. The, the title of the book is taken from the description of a, of a protest um, in which, in the suburbs of Damascus, in which people literally crossed a bridge, and there were so many people in this protest in April 2011 that um, it shook. The bridge The bridge that people crossed shook. So the, the person says, in that, in that part, we crossed a bridge and it trembled. So I was at a, a book talk here in Washington, D.C., and in the front row, one, a young woman said, I, a young steering woman read, said, I was reading this, and when I got to that excerpt, I started to cry because I realized I was at that protest, She said that I was there, I saw it from my balcony, and I said, did the bridge actually tremble? And she said, yeah, the bridge seemed to shake. So um, so there's, in some sense, it's, um, I, of course, that's that's uh, not necessarily a convincing um, uh, answer to a skeptical reader to say, but Syrians really think it represents them. But again and again, Syrians say they do. So I can say, I mean, this is any piece of work that uh, it relies in some ways on the, the, the integrity of, of the author, the sincerity of the author, or people's will to right. believe believe the author. And so I can say that the, what made it into the book were things that I heard repeatedly, again and again. If it was too idiosyncratic, if it didn't seem believable, I wouldn't put it in because I knew that Syrians reading the book would say... That's not really us. So the the excerpts that made it in were typically things that represented things I heard repeatedly, um, but but were able. You know, it just worked in that sense um, of 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 how to 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 connect it and have it hold together as as a book. So of course there's selectivity, and I'm sort of the the architecture, the scaffolding behind behind the book. You read the testimonials, but um, clearly, uh, it it um, you know it is a structured. Narrative. It's mm-hmm. um, it reads as if a series of conversations, uh, but nothing gets on the page unless a human decides to put it there, and that that human yeah. is, is me. So well, but uh, I hope, hope it, it stands. It, but
0: it's in the other direction as yeah. well. I mean, mm-hmm. so so we know that a lot of the activists in, mm-hmm. in the early days of the war, you know, they're incredibly courageous, mm-hmm. in producing yeah. the documentary footage uh, with their camera phones and right. getting the getting the message out about atrocities. Right. But many of them were also very self-consciously and very mm-hmm. actively shaping the narrative mm-hmm. in ways that would support the uprising right. and help to build international condemnation of the Assad regime which doesn't mean they were lying it just mm-hmm. means that they were cra- they were crafting mm-hmm. their own narratives right and so you're interviewing people with crafting your narrative, mm-hmm. and those people are also crafting their narratives. How do you navigate yeah. uh, the those kind of the streams of narrative crossing or not crossing?
1: Uh-huh. I mean, ultimately, I think you you do the best you can. I mean, because I interviewed so many Syrians um, over a long period of time and in so many countries, you just hope that with the sheer number um, triangulating amongst them, um, also sort of triangulating with all the written and published and audio and visual materials that exist. Out there, so that I could also see, oh yeah, this seems very similar to what I've read in 20 million articles that I read online and so forth. So you try to then triangulate as not really a form of, of, of you know fact checking, but plausibility checking that all of this seems consistent. Um, as well, I mean there was also an ethnographic component to my work, which doesn't necessarily make it into the book. What's in the book are just the testimonials that I recorded and transcribed and had as, as material on the page. There was also a whole lot that I was picking up that never made it onto audio recording or made it onto mm-hmm. into testimonials I spent a lot of time with these displaced Syrians I spent time with families sometimes I live with families I spent times in coffee shops until like the late hours of the night in, in uh, services and in buses in um, watching and following people's Facebook postings over and over the years and so forth and that gave me a chance um, in so many different settings to also see how Syrians talked amongst themselves how they talked to me when I wasn't audio recording um, it gave me a lot of chance to observe so that if I recorded something and knew it seemed completely out of sync or even contradictory to things I was hearing in other settings I knew it would be less believable so uh, it's possible that in the work of, of this of sort of narratives the narrative component the subjective component seems all the more um, Uh, Dramatic and perhaps uh, doubt-inducing, but I think in all kinds of of work, there's always subjectivity. There's always choices that are made. There's always always things that are in and are left out. You know, whether it's statistical researchers or 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 rational choice theories, all of that element of the um, the writer or the producer's own choice is there. You navigate it the best you can and try to do a good job.
0: You see, uh, you know, like a YouTube video of this woman suddenly starts dancing in a a train station and it's Uh so effortless and pure, Uh she practiced that 500 times. And in a sense, the enormous amount of craft goes into spontaneity. Yeah. And I think that, so to me at least, as a political scientist reading this, one of the things which is so impressive about the book Mm -hmm. is that I can see the political science behind I can see the scaffolding uh-huh. and yet the narrative still holds together. Which is okay. which is uh, which is a real, I think, a real accomplishment in, in terms of you know how you present the material.
1: Thanks. I mean in some ways I, I was hoping, you know, in some ways I saw it as bridging kind of two different genres that that political science I think can offer a lot as far as explaining political phenomena. It identifies variables, it identifies processes, big structural forces, but a lot of political science writing can be seem to be devoid and divorced from the human experience of the real human beings who live politics, Mm -hmm. who make politics, who suffer the consequences of politics. At the same time, I saw amazing humanistic writing in journalism and other types of fields that really capture the human dimension of these types of conflicts, but don't so self-consciously deal with these structural forces, the generalizable dynamics that we know are at work. So I thought, how can something Uh, how can I produce a piece of writing that explains what I would want my students to know, what I would want a political science readership to know? Explain something, but at the same time, is deeply human. And I found that Syrians themselves were explaining things. So for example, we who study authoritarian re- resilience know about regime survival strategies, about how they try regimes try to atomize citizens or create distrust or use cooptation and coercion, all the kinds of things we know that authoritarian regimes do. I found that when Syrians were talking about life before 2011, they were naming all of these strategies because they lived them. They talked about their encounters with the ruling party they They talked about trying to be recruited as being informants. They talked about a fear of undercover uh, spies and so forth. They talked about not trusting their neighbors. They were describing all these things in ways that political scientists might do with a lot of heavy theory and jargon. They were saying it as they lived it, and I wanted just to present that to the
0: reader. Were there any kind of theoretical stories that you wanted to tell or Mm -hmm. mechanisms that you wanted to illustrate, but the quotes just weren't there? that they just Uh didn't, in fact, seem to be what Syrians were experiencing or thinking about? Mm
1: -hmm. You know, no, because I don't think I I went about it thinking, what are the theories of the mechanisms I want to illustrate? Let me find testimonies that do. Rather, I said, here are the testimonies. What are the mechanisms and and the theories that I see in those testimonies?
0: Was there anything that surprised you that you thought you would see but didn't?
1: You know, it's interesting. I don't think as much about things I was thought I would see and didn't as much as things I did see but necessarily weren't necessarily expecting. And for me, that was most clear in just the way that the process and the project evolved over time. So as I was saying, when I began in 2012, and you know this well because we had many, many discussions about it, I was most interested in this idea of how Syrians sort of overcame fear and participated in protest for the first time. So in 2012, I... Uh, I heard people use this expression, breaking the barrier fear, and I asked people, you know, what does that expression mean to you? How did it happen in your lives? That was 2012. 2013, I went back to interview people. Um, and I, this uh, Syrian man that I, I worked with uh, a lot, he was very helpful in introducing me to people, I said, you know, Wendy, why are you here? Why have you come back a second summer? And I said, oh, um, you know, to, I, I'm interested in... in, in uh, in in asking people about how they broke the barrier of fear, and he said, no, you can't ask that question anymore. Ask people about despair. At that point, I realized that um, you know the Syrian conflict had moved on, and I was always one step or several steps behind Syrians' experiences. So if I went in with my own clear agenda of questions I wanted answers to, of things I wanted to know... I would already be out of touch with their experiences that had moved forward in time, especially as I did a lot of the interviewing in summers while I was teaching during the school year. So so rather than saying, you know, I, I'm interested in this, give me answers, I sort of discovered that for me what was most productive in the interviewing was to keep things extremely open and it just create a space where people could talk about what was most important to them at that time. Um, and I would learn from that uh, rather than structure, question, structure interviews in a way that I would um, perhaps get what was interesting to me but miss what was really important to them.
0: Now, you, you re-interviewed uh, mm-hmm. a fair number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you talked to them multiple times over mm-hmm. the years. Did they ever say, boy, when I talked to you last year, I thought this. And boy, was I wrong. I thought that we were going to accomplish this and... Or I thought that Assad would never do that and I totally miscalculated. Or did Mm -hmm. they tell you things that were actually contradictory... Mm-hmm. but they didn't really realize that it was contradictory when you went back and compared what they said mm-hmm. a year ago to what they say now
1: you know not not so much because I think many of those interviews were really pretty personal such yeah. that you know the first interview was getting a sense of their life and the second interview was okay where are you now um, it, uh, more than necessarily sort of reflecting on that so it was mm-hmm. m- more of a bit of updating and I can say one thing is I would love to keep interviewing people the same people again and again and be able to answer these types of questions about how their own how people's views change over time, how their relationship to the uprising changes over time Um, unfortunately one thing I can see is a lot of my, um, the people I've interviewed are getting tired of being interviewed so that now, and of course our relationships have have evolved And as I've stayed in touch with them, now people say, hey aren't we friends already? You're really gonna, (laughs) don't you can't bring out that tape recorder anymore it's over, so I I think that people have some people have have gotten a bit exhausted by the whole process of of the artificiality of having an audio recorder and them having to yeah. <laughs> To monologue, mm-hmm. so um, I'm not able to probe that yeah, individual that as much as as much as I would like, because in the end of the day, these are these are people who have their own limits, not not data who are um, you know telling us what we really want data to be able to tell but, us.
0: You know, in some ways, I think it's good that it took you so long mm-hmm. to figure out what you wanted to do, because it gave you the opportunity you. to see these evolve <laughs> over time. Yeah. because you know that yeah. first wave of of books and articles about Syria, it was very much written like most of the Arab Spring literature was written in that. That moment of optimism and enthusiasm. Yes. And I think, you know, some amount of the writing kind of stopped there and they're mm-hmm. still asking those same questions. And, you know, maybe it's good that you can then capture a trajectory where, you know, it's kind of a common theme that I've seen mm-hmm. in a number of the best books written mm-hmm. about Syria mm-hmm. by, you know, people you know who are spending time there, talk really talking to people, where even though they identify very very strongly with the opposition and with the need to change the regime in Syria and to bring about a democratic Syria and all mm-hmm. those things they could see what was happening on the ground and the rise of you know corrupt warlords and the jihadists and as you said a minute ago the this shift towards despair and all of these things but it's not as neat or tidy of a story but it actually is more in some ways a more useful one for giving us a sense of what these conflicts are like and what they do to people Mm -hmm. and so it just occurs to me that it's probably probably a good thing that it took you the time it took you yeah, to no, get I, th-
1: here th- thank you well that's that's, that's, that's very that's uh, very uh, gratifying to, to hear but no I, I agree there the book has a trajectory it has an arc it begins with a sense of sort of fear intimidation silence a sense of futility under authoritarianism through the euphoria of people's participating in protest and then it becomes increasingly dark inc- increasingly fragmented murky muddled and by the end there are stories of despair there are stories of guilt there are people expressing questions of regret. Even those who went out and protested and sacrificed and risked so much saying, you know, is it our fault that the country's now destroyed? Should we never have gone out? Some people say we had to and we did it and it was the right thing. And other people express tremendous doubt um, and have really pained uh, thinking and feeling about it all. So I, I agree that it, it's, it's nice to capture that, that trajectory. It would have been um, only a very, very partial story if it had stopped anywhere in uh, in the middle.
0: So uh, next time that you come back on the podcast, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to force you to go back to talking about causal mechanisms okay. and uh, and the operation of, of, of various uh, uh, hypothesized. Uh, uh, Et Etc. Et yeah. But for now, um, yeah, this is really a, a, a tremendous accomplishment, and uh, people should read this. Uh, we crossed a bridge, and it trembled. Voices from Syria. Uh, Wendy Perlman, Northwestern University, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much.